Let's start reading Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every year in churches all over the world, people celebrate this day with pageantry and with liturgy and with narrative and with song. This is the one day a year I slightly wish we were a formal church, capable of great rite and ritual and tradition and history. This is the day that I wish our church was made out of stone walls that would speak of permanence. This is the day that I wish we had a resounding pipe organ that would recall the great traditions. This is the day I'd really like to have a 300 voice choir that points our minds and our hearts to heaven. And the reason for that is because this is the day that we tell our story and our story deserves a setting of grandeur because it is a precious jewel and it merits having a setting that highlights its beauty. Now the other 364 days a year, I'm really glad we do it the way that we do it because I think that we do our spirituality best in simplicity and in humility. But for today, just keep in mind that we're going to tell a very majestic story in very humble surroundings. So every year, at NRCC, we retell some dimension of our story. It's a story of God's deep, deep love for us. It's a story of our rich hope in the face of a thousand forms of death. It's a story about fulfillment in the ongoing restlessness and yearning of the human heart. It's a story of meaning for those who are hungry for meaning, and it's a story of a future that is bright with hope and bright with promise. It's a story that says fulfillment answers to the deep unfulfillment of our souls. Fruition, it says, is to all who have not yet had their fruition come to pass. Wholeness is brought to brokenness, our story tells us. Life is brought to death. Hope is brought to despair. And when we tell this grand story each year, we say that that story informs all of the smaller stories that we live on a day-to-day basis. That that story, the grand story, speaks to and informs the way that we live out the stories of everyday life. Every day that we walk through 
if we will allow it, is profoundly impacted by the story that we find ourselves in. Every day that we live through, it is possible for hope to address daily disappointments, for life to come to those points of death that invade our everyday life, for healing to come to the broken places that emerge in our lives and in our children and in our families and in our souls. Every day, it is possible to reference this story as a roadmap for living in the midst of a wounded and wounding world. The story that we retell each year is a story of love. In other years, we've talked about the romantic dimensions of that love, of touching and tender care. Today, I want to talk about the selfless dimensions of that love, the heroically selfless, courageous kind of love. I read an essay by Catherine Ann Porter. You might remember that name from your high school or college literature class because she was well known for her short stories. But this was an essay. She also wrote political and social essays. She didn't live a sheltered life. She experienced a lot of what life has to offer and some of it was difficult. In this essay, she was writing about love and marriage and love and heroism. She talked about the nature of love and she challenged the preoccupation that our society has when we put too much of an emphasis on the romantic side of love. Seeing love primarily in its romantic dimensions, she says, causes us to lose some of the heroic component that goes with it. Romantic love, she says, can be very limited because the passion of love is so enthralling and the feelings that come from that romantic dimension love, of love are so powerful within us. And it gives us such a good feeling to have these dimensions of love that sometimes we find ourselves so drawn to the feeling that romantic love becomes about the experience of self. It's about what I feel in the throes of this great experience. Romantic love, she says, because of this, doesn't tend to have the same kind of elasticity that other forms of love do, because when the feeling is so profound, inevitably there are going to be things that come up that cause the feelings to dissipate. And when that happens, we find that love doesn't stretch well. Romantic love tends to break rather than stretch. Whereas on the other hand, a mature form of love tends to do just that, tends to stretch far enough to embrace the failures and the weaknesses of the beloved. Mature love has a capacity within itself to make noble sacrifices on behalf of the imperfect one, the imperfect beloved. Mature love has the capacity to stretch itself to accepting those with flaws. The capacity to serve another rather than self. Mature love, this kind of heroic love, is not primarily about the lover. It is about the lover's selflessness and the lover's devotion to the beloved.
And this love, she says in this article, doesn't come naturally. This love, she said, has to be learned, and we grow into it. In the early 90s, <clears throat> I saw Les Miserables and The Phantom of the Opera right next to each other uh, in very close proximity, probably three weeks or a month apart separating them. <clears throat> and the comparison was telling in my mind. Mike, I think it's getting a little too cold. Could you turn the air just a little warmer? <clears throat> the comparison of these two was telling in my mind because one of them glorified romantic love, and one of them glorified a mature form of love. For the phantom, love was an insatiable drive to meet a great interior need within. Horribly disfigured of face, the phantom was discarded when he was a child and was mistreated by society. And the hurt of his past and the cruelty that he experienced led him to a life of isolation and dismissal, having experienced great rejection. And in his pain and in the isolation, he began to live in the dark, sequestering himself in the catacombs under the opera house. And in his great need to connect, he developed a fixation on a particularly beautiful woman who became his beloved, the object of his affection. And his obsession with her promised to meet a great interior need for love and for acceptance and for affirmation and for validation. And this great need blinded him, blinded him to the place that he manipulated her and controlled her, eventually dragging his beauty into the dark prison of his life, although singing to her beautifully all the time. <laughs> now his attraction carried little concern for the implications to her. His love was incomplete, his love was romantic, his love had not matured, for it contained elements of selfishness and cowardice. Now in Les Mis, on the other hand, a love was demonstrated that existed to serve the well-being of another. Jean Valjean also had experienced great pain and rejection. He had faced cruel injustice at the hands of a merciless prison system. He was a convict who, because of his status, faced brutal rejection even once he was released from prison. He too had been hardened by the painful experiences of his life, just as the phantom had. Yet early in his journey, something happened to Jean that had not happened to the phantom. Jean received grace at the hands of a representative of God's goodness and love. On a cold and rainy night, without resource and alone, Carrying the yellow papers that identified him as a convict, he had few options. And in this state, John was invited to share a meal and a bed in the home of a poor rural bishop. And to repay the kindness that he had received, John stole the only possession of value the bishop had, 
pair of silver candlesticks. And he was caught. And when he was caught by the gendarmes, he was facing imprisonment for the rest of his life because you don't get a second chance when you're a convict. And he would have faced that imprisonment but for the grace of the bishop. One man with future perfect eyes saw Jean Valjean, not as he was in the moment, not the thief, not the brutalized and brutalizing man, saw him not the one hardened by years of mistreatment and cruelty in the prison system, not as the unjust, graceless criminal who repaid kindness with burglary. No, the bishop saw something else. The bishop saw the glorious image of God behind the cruel and hardened eyes. He saw the redemption of Christ behind the damage and the pain. And when the gendarmes brought Jean in chains to the door, the bishop had eyes that could see beyond the obvious. He said, expressing the very grace of God, no, no, gentlemen, you mistake. These candlesticks were my gift to this young man. And my friend, he said, turning to Jean, knowing what was at stake in his life. He said, it occurred to me after you left that I should also have offered you this matching platter to go along with the candlesticks. And in this act of divine grace, the bishop purchased the healing of a young man's heart. And the rest of the story is of a man once redeemed, giving himself in heroic love and acceptance to the abandoned orphan of a prostitute, to a town without resource, needing financial foundations, to a young man who came to take away that which he loved most in his life. And in this story, Victor Hugo shows us what mature love looks like. Love that is born of grace. Love that is born with eyes that can see beyond the broken parts of another. Love that is born of a grace that has future perfect thinking, being able to see into a destiny that has not yet unfolded. A selfless love. A love that works on behalf of the beloved, not the lover. A heroic love. Now in our story, the story that we celebrate today, the story of Easter, Jesus shows us this kind of love. The kind of love that Catherine Ann Porter talks about, the kind of love Victor Hugo talks about. The love of God that has the capacity to see beyond sin. The love of God that has the capacity to see beyond shortcoming and failure. The love of God that has the capacity to see beyond the habitual bankruptcy of the heart. The love of God, the divine love that indwells each of us, that has the capacity to see beyond our own needs, to see beyond others' shortcomings. This is future perfect vision love. 
and seeing people through this vision. Jesus comes for us and shows us a reality that is beyond our own. Jesus walks this earth and speaks of God that is beyond the framework and constructs in which we typically live our day-to-day lives. Jesus lives among us, bears the brunt of sin's consequence as we do, and then goes to the cross and unjustly faces and faces down death and rises conquering death and sin and does so with a heart of courageous, selfless, heroic love. Not to be served, not to get his own needs met, but with a heroic act of selfless care for others. A mature love that looks beyond what's in it for me. A love that expands to embrace the beloved as he is or as she is. A love that has an eye past the obvious flaws of the beloved. A love that embraces flaws and all. And in this kind of love that our story exemplifies brings onto the earth a new environment, a transformative environment, a healing environment, an environment that changes the ground rules of everything. Because in the context of selfless love, human beings are transformed. In the context of selfless love, human beings are redeemed. In the context of selfless love, human beings are healed. And in this story that we tell each Easter, Jesus exemplifies this kind of love. And then having exemplified it, Jesus goes on to call you and to call me to this same kind of love, to be agents of it, to be perpetrators of it, to be carriers of it. In Matthew 20, Jesus says, if you would be great, then you would be one who serves others. If you would be great, then you would be one who thinks less of what works for you and more of what works for the world around you. If you would be great, then your mission on this earth would be to better the lives of others. Be like me, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve, giving his life for many. This is the Easter story, and this is our story. And this is the story that frames our reality. Selfless love that conquers pain. Selfless love that conquers wounds. Selfless love that conquers hearts that can go hard in this earth. Ours is a story of divine love that provokes healing. Ours is a story of healing that then makes us selfless. And then ours is a story of that selflessness being extended to salt the earth with the flavors of God. Ours is a story that gives us a mission of bettering the lives of others, that cannot stand idly by when others are being wounded, that when people are made attractive by the hardships they experience on this earth, we look past 
the unattractiveness and we bring the same love that we have received. The kind of love that can't stand by and not act on behalf of those who are being fractured in their relationships, cannot stand by and not step in when people are being crushed under emotional wounds or under poverty or under a lack of basic needs or under economic systems that are crushing people or social systems that are disenfranchising people. Ours is a story that evokes a love that stands up for others. Nobody stood up for the phantom. Somebody stood up for Jean Valjean. And when it happened, it changed the world. And this is the story that we celebrate each Easter. Jesus stood up for you, received the grace of God. And then Jesus invites you to stand up for others and carry that grace and carry the story of Easter to others. Have this mind in you that was the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. That though he expressed the divine, though he merited special treatment because of goodness and virtue, he didn't grasp after the position of what he deserved. He didn't ask us to bow to him as would have been proper. Instead, he served selflessly, went to the cross thinking of others extended unselfish love, thinking of others, gave grace to those wrapped in weakness and failure. And, Paul says in this text, you have that same mind in you. You have that same capacity within yourself. You have that in you because this is your story. The story that you live is a transformative one. So why do we retell this story so often through the centuries? Why do we come back to this story again and again and again? We do it because if we will allow it to do so, this story has profound power to change how we live through the centuries, how we live in our lifetimes, and how we live this week, this spring, this summer, in this marriage, on this job, with these strangers who are disenfranchised in this society, with these people who are being crushed under these troubles, with these children that I have the capacity to influence, with these people who are laboring under these personality flaws, with these friends who are despairing with their recurring points of habitual failure, this story has the capacity to transform how I live in regard to these. And our story is a story of hope for today, promise for today. Our story is one of hope for tomorrow and promise for tomorrow. It inspires us to step in when the world is hurting. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 as he was thinking on this day. Death swallowed by triumphant life. Who gets the last word now, death? Who's afraid of you now, death? Death swallowed up in triumphant life. Who got the last word now, death? Who's afraid of you now, death?
Every time that we step forward and begin to care for someone else, we begin the process of eternity now. Every time we step out and love someone who has been wounded, we begin the process of eternity now. Every time that we begin to care for those who are without or those who are within need, we begin to dismantle death's power and we begin to dismantle sin's destructive and toxic influence and we, eternity begins now. Every time we love one, every time we give ourselves selflessly into the raising of our children, every time we give ourselves selflessly into the nurturing and developing of those that we work with, every time that we step outside of our comfort zone and find a need in our culture and meet that need, every time we care for those who have been disenfranchised, every time we do that, we begin the process of eternity now the dismantling of sin and death that was won for us in our story begins now. Every time we comfort someone who is heartbroken, every time we encourage someone who is downtrodden, every time we step in and precipitate change, death, where's your sting now? Death, where's your victory now? So I encourage you this Easter to be transformed by the love and to be transforming agents, carriers of the love. Lord, may it be so among us. May we be carriers of Easter's love. Be it so among us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.